Welcome to the First Baptist Cadillac Podcast. First Baptist Cadillac is a growing intergenerational family of faith whose mission is to make disciples of Jesus Christ. Join us each week as we engage God's Word together. We would love to hear from you. Please contact us at firstbaptistcadillac.org. Would you please turn with me in your Bibles this morning to Revelation chapter 16. We're going to be covering verses 1 through 9 today. The first four bold judgments. I was originally going to tackle the first five. We narrowed it down to the verse four. Or first four, I think you'll see why in just a moment. But Revelation 16, I'm going to make a bold statement right now, is the greatest chapter in the book of Revelation. And I'm going to give you a minute just to let that sink in for a minute, because that may shock you. That may surprise you. After all, this is the chapter that is about the final devastation of the earth. And so we might naturally consider this to be the worst chapter in Revelation, right? And even if it was okay, how could it compete with the glorious appearing of Jesus Christ and the coming of the new heaven and new earth? So how would I say that this is the greatest chapter in the book of Revelation? Well, When I say greatest, it's because of the Greek term mega, the Greek term mega. And as you can see on this chart that we're going to put up right now, by the yellow blocks, that word occurs 82 times in the book of Revelation. But as you can see by the pink blocks, 11 of those occur right here in the 21 verses of Revelation chapter 16. So in that sense, this word mega, which we translate great, this makes Revelation 16 the greatest chapter in the book. It's the mega chapter, recording events that are unlike anything the earth has ever seen. Just as Jesus said in Matthew chapter 24, verse 21, as he was referring to these events, he said, for then there will be great mega tribulation, such as has not been from the beginning of the world until now, no, and never will be. And if those days had not been cut short, no human being would be saved. But for the sake of the elect, those days will be cut short. Now, this concept of mega or great tribulation, it is a mega problem for preterists. Now, you all remember what a preterist is, right? A preterist is someone who believes that Revelation was not written in 95 AD, but actually in 65 AD, and those 30 years make a ton of difference. And preterists believe that the prophecies contained in the book were largely fulfilled when? In 70 AD with the destruction of Jerusalem. And so you got Nero, who is the Antichrist, the destruction of Jerusalem, refers to all these events that are happening that we're talking about now. Um, But as terrible as those events were in the destruction of Jerusalem, and we would agree that they were terrible, they don't in any way resemble the scope or magnitude of what we're going to be talking about today. And what Jesus was talking about in Matthew 24. You see, this chapter refers to things that are truly mega. Such as has not been from the beginning of the world until now, no, and never will be. But before we get into these mega things, let's recap briefly where we've been. Book of Revelation could be broken down into three main parts. Part one, chapter one, those things which were past. John's vision of the exalted Christ. And as we know, this is the revelation of Jesus Christ. Part two, chapters two and three, three things that are present. The seven letters to the churches of Asia Minor, both to encourage them and to correct them in really difficult times. 
And then part three, the longest part of the book, chapters 4 through 22, it deals with things that are prophetic or future, the consummation of the kingdom. And the purpose of this third part is to give us believers the advanced history of how Jesus Christ, by means of judgment, becomes king with a view towards calling them to faithfulness and godliness. And we're so thankful this morning that this judgment comes after the church has been raptured, it has been taken to heaven, and during the seven-year period known as the tribulation, where there are three waves of judgment, seven seals, seven trumpets, and seven bowls. Now, last week in chapter 15, it really started the section of Scripture that we continue today. <clears throat> last week was the prelude to the bowl judgments. It was an introduction of preparation meant to get us ready for these mega events that we will now cover in chapter 16. And that prelude comes in the form of two scenes. We saw a scene of worship in verses 1 through 4 and a scene of woe in verses 5 through 8. And one of the fascinating things that we uncovered last week was the fact that um, there's a series of parallels between Revelation 15 and 16 and the book of Exodus. And those parallels are intentional. And I got really excited about it. I'm going to get excited today because we've got more to show you. But um, first of all, we had Exodus Israelites who were standing by the Red Sea. They conquered Pharaoh by the blood of the Passover lamb. And then in Revelation 15, we saw tribulation saints standing by the glass sea as they conquered the Antichrist also by the blood of the lamb who was Jesus Christ. And today we're going to expand that comparison of those similarities between Exodus and Revelation even further because there are, in fact, great similarities between the plagues in Exodus and the bold judgments in Revelation. I think that's going to be very obvious to you as we're going through. It's like, hey, we've seen this movie before, right? We saw it in Exodus, and we saw it in one other place that we're also going to uncover. And you might just say, why? Why would God intentionally bring similarities between Exodus and Revelation, why would he be? And the reason in part is that God is addressing a similar situation, isn't he? When you think about Exodus, when you think about Pharaoh, you think about tribulation, you think about Antichrist, look at what it says in Exodus chapter 5, verse 2, where Pharaoh says, Who is the Lord that I should obey his voice and let Israel go? I do not know the Lord, and moreover, I will not let Israel go. You could almost, uh, word for word, that could be a quote from the Antichrist, could it not? And in the same way, during the tribulation, the Antichrist sets himself against God and his people. And just as God used the plagues in Egypt to humiliate Pharaoh, he's going to use these bold judgments to humiliate the Antichrist and to let his people go. And so the similarities allow us, I believe, to appreciate the sovereignty of God. These things aren't by accident, are they? They're not coincidence. They happen because God, in his sovereignty, providentially made them to be. And it also shows us, again, the beautiful artistry, symmetry, and points of co coherence in the Bible. So let's dive into this mega chapter together as I begin reading Revelation chapter 16, verse 1. It says, Then I heard a loud voice from the temple telling the seven angels, Go and pour out on the earth the seven bowls of the wrath of God. So the first angel went and poured out his bowl on the earth, and harmful and painful sores came upon the people who bore the mark of the beast and worshipped its image. The second angel poured out his bowl into the sea, and it became like the blood of a corpse, and every living thing died that was in the sea. 
The third angel poured out his bowl into the rivers and the springs of water, and they became blood. And I heard the angel in charge of the water say, Just are you, O holy one, who is and who was, for you brought these judgments. For they have shed the blood of saints and prophets, and you have given them blood to drink. It is what they deserve. And I heard the altar saying, Yes, Lord God the Almighty, true and just are your judgments. The fourth angel poured out his bowl on the sun, and it was allowed to scorch people with fire. They were scorched by the fierce heat, and they cursed the name of God, who had power over these plagues. They did not repent and give him glory. Can we just pause right now to pray and to ask for God's help as we feed on his word? Heavenly Father, um, this is tough. This is not one of those happy-go-lucky, joy-filled sermons that are light and airy and send us home with um, just, just a light spirit. This is heavy. It weighs heavily on our hearts. But God, may we not be those who read into your word what we want to see. May we simply take your word at its word and believe that it is true, and you are exactly who has been revealed in your word, and ultimately you are true and righteous and good even in your judgment. So while we wrestle with that, and rightfully so, um, again, God, you have proven yourself time and time and time again to be trustworthy. So we trust you today, and we trust you to help us. We trust you to open our ears, our hearts, our minds to what your Holy Spirit would want to share with us. And I pray for your help as I present difficult material. May my heart be right. May my lips, what I speak, be from you. And I pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. All right, so chapter 16, the bold judgments can be broken down into two main parts. Bulls 1 through 4 and verses 1 through 9, these are going to be judgments against nature. And then Bulls 5 through 7, verses 10 through 21, these are judgments against the beast. And so again, we're just going to cover this first part today, Bulls 1 through 4, verses 1 through 9, judgments against nature. And they include sores, bloody seawater, bloody freshwater, and a scorching sun. And already I hope that you're starting to look back and to see, hey, this sounds really familiar, right? This has some correspondence and familiarity with the plagues of Egypt. Let's dive into verse 1 and let it set the scene for us. The Apostle John says, Then I heard a loud voice from the temple telling the seven angels, Go and pour out on the earth the seven bowls of the wrath of God. Now, the first question I would have for us this morning is to whom does this loud voice belong? Who is calling for the seven bowls to be poured out? I think that's important. We need to know where this is coming from. Who is the author of this? Who is responsible? And the answer is that this is the voice of God. But how do we know? Well, number one, because it comes from the temple. And as we talked about last, play, last week, the temple, the, the, the tabernacle, the tent of sanctuary is the dwelling place of God. And also, our passage ended last week very interestingly. It said, no one could enter the sanctuary until the seven plagues of the seven angels were finished. So that tells us who's the only resident in the temple at that time. 
It's God. So the voice coming from the sanctuary, from the tent, it must be the voice of God. He is the author of these judgments. He is the one authorizing the angels to pour out their bowls on the earth. Second question we want to ask about verse 1, we also kind of covered last week, but what is the significance of this particular type of bowl? You know, we could have in our minds like this big pitcher, you know, that takes a long time to pour out, but that would be inaccurate. For this particular type of bowl is the Greek phylos. It's a saucer or a shallow bowl, meaning that the bowl judgments will be poured out quickly and completely. All right, these will be intense, rapid-fire judgments, one right after the other with no pause in between. And so what we have here is God the Father from the temple with a loud voice giving the command that it is time. The time has come for the wrath contained in these saucers to be poured out on the earth. Look with me at verse 2. We encounter the first of these saucers, and it contains God's wrath in the form of sores. Verse 2 says, So the first angel went and poured out his bowl on the earth, and harmful and painful sores came upon the people who bore the mark of the beast and worshipped its image. This, this word for sores here is interesting. We've encountered the idea before. It's in fact the same used for um, that of the plagues in Egypt when they had boils, if you remember that. And also Job, when he was from head to toe covered with boils or sores. And also the poor beggar Lazarus in Luke chapter 16, verse 21. So those three accounts, and when you know the suffering that they were experiencing, it gives you some appreciation for the magnitude of suffering that goes along with these boils. These are inflamed, oozing, ulcerous sores for which there is no relief. Again, these are mega sores. But note who it is that will be afflicted with these. Who is it? It says, The sores, in verse 2, came upon the people who bore the mark of the beast and worshipped its image. God will make a distinction between those who are his and those who are not at this point in the tribulation, and God's people will be protected from these sores. God's people will be protected from these sores just as they were from the plague of sores that was unleashed in the book of Exodus. Now, interestingly, there's some thought about the origin of these sores that it has something to do with the mark of the beast itself, that something goes incredibly wrong with the mark, that it ends up with some infection or some reaction, and, and something goes horribly wrong. And that's interesting. We, we can't say that definitively, but it, it would make sense if that were indeed the case. Well, as if these mega sores were not bad enough, that all who do not know Jesus Christ as Lord and Savior at this point in the tribulation will be suffering from them, we encounter the second bold judgment in verse 3. The second bold judgment, which is bloody seawater. It says, The second angel poured out his bowl into the sea, and it became like the blood of a corpse, and every living thing died that was in the sea. How many creatures live in the sea? <laughs> we can't even imagine how many creatures are living in the sea. And this is that every living thing died that was in the sea. Now, this should sound very familiar for two reasons. Number one, again, this sounds a lot like what happened in Egypt. Let's look at Exodus chapter 7, verse 20, where it says, Moses and Aaron did as the Lord commanded in the sight of Pharaoh and in the sight of his servants. He lifted up the staff and struck the water in the Nile, and all the water in the Nile turned to blood. 
And the fish in the Nile died, and the Nile stank so that the Egyptians could not drink water from the Nile. There was blood throughout all the land of Egypt. So we, we definitely see the connection with Exodus in the plagues in the land of Egypt as God continues to demonstrate his absolute sovereignty. But there's a second reason that this second bold judgment should sound familiar. Does anybody know what it is? Think with me. The other judgments, let's go to the trumpet judgments. Let's go to the second trumpet judgment. And if we look back in Revelation chapter 8, verse 8, it says, The second angel blew his trumpet, and something like a great mountain burning with fire was thrown into the sea, and a third of the sea became what? Blood. So we, we've been here before. A third of the living creatures in the sea died, and a third of the ships were destroyed. So not only is there this amazing similarity between the bold judgments and the plagues in Egypt, but now also between the bold judgments and the trumpet judgments. And in fact, in chart form, the trumpet judgments and the bold judgments, it looks look something like this. We have the same type of judgment in the same order, dealing with the earth, the sea, the rivers, the heavens, mankind in torment, an army, and angry nations. So you have corresponding judgments with the trumpets and the bulls, which has caused some to say, oh, duh, I get it. There really is just one set of judgments, and they're just repeated in Revelation for literary purposes to emphasize the judgments. Seals, trumpets, bulls, they all just describe the same thing. Have you heard that before? This is called recapitulation. It's quite common. It's a very familiar understanding of what's happening in Revelation. And as we look at the chart, we might be tempted to say, oh, yeah, that makes sense. So this is, you know, this repetition is just for effect. But what's wrong with that thinking? There's several things, several things. But one in particular, I hope, jumped off the page at you today. And it is the difference in scope and magnitude between the trumpets and the bulls, right? Let's look at, back at Revelation 8, 9 with the trumpets. It says, a third of the living creatures in the sea died, and a third of the ships were destroyed. Now let's go to chapter 16, verse 3, the bull judgments. The second angel poured out his bull into the sea, and it became like the blood of a corpse, and every living thing died that was in the sea. So we got the second trumpet, which affected a third of the living creatures, but here with the second bull judgment, every living thing dies. And the point is this, and it's an important one. The trumpet judgments are partial. The trumpet judgments are partial, while the bull judgments are complete. The bold judgments are complete. They are, in fact, mega judgments in this mega chapter in the book of Revelation. And here's the good news about this, all right? Because God could have, in an instant, just brought one giant bowl of judgment and wiped out the earth, right? And made, gotten rid of evil and made everything right in an instant. But he hasn't. He's been very, very patient. Very, very patient. And I think what we see here with seals and trumpets and bowls until it builds to this point of a complete judgment, it reminds us of 2 Peter 3, 9. The Lord is not slow to fulfill his promise as some count slowness. Because I don't know about you, I'm about done with this judgment part of Revelation, okay? And I imagine if I'm about done with it, you're about done with it too. But I think as we get maybe perhaps even weary of this section of the book, again, it reminds us of God's patience and his desire that lost sinners repent and how he gives them and how he gives us 
every opportunity possible to repent and come to salvation. He is patient toward you, not wishing that any should perish, but that all should reach repentance. And so lest we think that God is just being cruel, he keeps bringing all this bad stuff, this bad tribulation to the earth just because he's mean. That couldn't be further from the truth. I actually believe it's the opposite. It's because he is so loving and patient and kind and compassionate that he doesn't just do it all in one fell swoop. So the first two, seals and trumpets are partial, providing opportunity for repentance. This third set of judgments is final. It is the very last opportunity for repentance. Well, can you imagine the ramifications of every living thing dying in the sea? I mean, the stench alone of dead sea creatures washing up on the shore would be overwhelming. How about the disease that would come from all of that? And don't forget, this is all the while that people are suffering from mega sores that cover their bodies from head to toe. You see, the fact that these bowls are shallow saucers poured out in quick succession means that the effects of the judgments are cumulative, right? You don't get to recover from one and then then meet the other one. It's like, no, these are accumulating. Calamity upon calamity upon calamity. The next of these is bowl number three, which is bloody fresh water. Revelation 16, 4. The third angel poured out his bowl into the rivers and the springs of water, and they became blood. So bloody, or bowl number two was bloody seawater. Bowl number three is bloody fresh water. And as we well know, fresh water is essential for human life. And that's why we as a church were so passionately in support of Haiti Clean Water and thankful for Lynn Ross and her leadership of that ministry and their work to instill water filters so that people in Haiti can have clean water to drink and so that they will not be stricken with dehydration and disease that comes from drinking um, undrinkable water, but they drink it anyway because it's all that they have. Because without clean water, what happens? People literally die. People literally die. But, But here's the thing as we deal with this bowl of judgment, there is no water filter that will be able to overcome the third bowl judgment. When the world's fresh water supply will be devastated by blood. And so in the wake of this judgment, can you imagine the chaos that will ensue as desperate people seek water to drink for survival? Remember a year ago when a virus made us hoard toilet paper? Right? What's it going to be like when people can't find water? And so you have people experiencing this mega suffering, oozing sores from head to toe, the destruction of the seas and all the consequences thereof, and now the devastation of the fresh water. Well, at this point, and again, some of you may be having these thoughts. I have these thoughts. We might question the character of God and wonder at all if all of this is, in fact, just. God, is this really necessary? Are you really good? Are you really loving? How can a loving God do this to his creation? How can a loving God do this to the earth? And that's where verse 5 comes in. God, God knows how we're wired. He knows how we think. He knows the answer to the question before we ask the question. And that's what happens right here in verse 5. And I heard the angel in charge of the water say, Just are you, O Holy One, who is and who was, For you brought these judgments. 
For they have shed the blood of saints and prophets, and you have given them blood to drink. It is what they deserve. And I heard the altar saying, yes, Lord God, the Almighty, true and just are your judgments. So how is God described in these verses? He's described as just. And again, let us not forget. I mean, when we watch movies, pretty much all movies have the same plot. There's good, evil, there's some problem that has to be solved, and at the end of the day, good triumphs over evil. And we have no problem with that in the movies, do we? But we have a problem with that at times in the book of Revelation. Whoa. God hardwired us for that narrative because that's the narrative of our existence. That is who we are as people. God is described here as just, and justice will be done. He's described as holy, and he is eternal, and therefore his judgments are true and just, which is why the bowl of bloody fresh water is poured out. Here's the point. The bloodthirsty people who spilled the blood of God's people during the tribulation have now been given blood to drink. That's just. They have ultimately received what they desired. And you know, that's how it will be in the judgment, church. Everyone will ultimately receive what they desire. If you desire to live independent of God, as a God unto yourself, as an idolater, then that's what God will give you in the form of eternity in hell. He will give you what you desire. On the other hand, if, you, if your desire is to live in humble submission to the creator of the universe and to live in fellowship with him, then that's what God will give you in the form of eternity in heaven. This is for all who have turned from their sin and turned to Jesus alone for forgiveness by faith receiving him as both Savior and Lord. God will give you what you desire as he gave to the bloodthirsty people in the tribulation who were given the blood to drink. So, verses 5 through 7, they remind us that all of God's judgments are true and they are righteous. They are righteous. As harsh as they seem to us, they give us an accurate picture, not of a mean God, but of the tragic severity of our sin. Problem isn't with God. Problem is with us and our sin. This is what sin is. As you look upon the devastation of the earth, I give you church sin. That's what it looks like. And God is simply performing justice. Well, if you're out of fresh water... What's the worst possible thing that could happen next? It actually happens in verse 8. Revelation 16, 8, the scorching sun, the fourth angel poured out his bowl on the sun, and it was allowed to scorch people with fire. Now, this one's hard for us to understand in northern Michigan, right? Where <laughs> We're so deprived of the sun. I actually have one of those happy lights in my office. You know what a happy light is, Right? It's the light you plug in and it blinds you, but it's all for the purpose of trying to simulate the fact that there's sunshine when we have months, it seems, on end without sunshine. We long to feel the sun's rays because the sun is good. 
We need the sun. The sun blesses us with warmth, with light, which leads to life. It is truly a gift from God. When's the last time that you just simply thanked God for the sun? It even elevates our mood when it's out. Thus, my happy light, right? It, uh, we, we need it. And you, you know the, the story. I mean, it can make us grumpy when we don't get to see the sun very often. And this time of year, we even we, we bathe in the sun. We want it so badly, hoping to soak in its rays. But all that chasing of the sun will come to an end when the fourth bowl is poured out. What was essential for life will now take life. Back in Revelation 8.12, during those trumpet judgments where we have these points of correspondence, the sun was darkened in the trumpet judgments, but here the sun is magnified. Now, I know none of you in this room have ever done this, but you've probably heard of people who take a magnifying glass, focus the sun's rays on an anthill, and watch the carnage as the ants are scorched. You've done that, haven't you? Yeah, that's what I mean. <laughs> that image, I mean, that's very much how it's going to feel here on the earth. As it says in verse 9, they were scorched by the fierce heat. So this is the ultimate in global warming. You know, what we're experiencing now is simply a warm-up. The scorching sun will once and for all melt the glaciers, the polar ice caps, resulting in the rise of the oceans and the flooding of the coasts, except what's the big problem with that? It's all blood and dead sea creatures, okay? Um, again, calamity upon calamity upon calamity, one mega devastation after another. Again, church, such is the consequence of our sin. It is not to be taken lightly. Well, you would think that these unparalleled disasters would drive people to their knees and cause them to repent, wouldn't you? It's like, what's it going to take? I mean, it, this, these are just the first four bold judgments, but we've already been through the seals and the trumpets, and now here we are in the bulls. But sadly, this is not the case. Instead, we read in the second half of verse 9, it says, actually, they cursed the name of God who had power over these plagues. And they did not repent and give him glory. And here's the point of application that I want to end with today, the point that I want to drive home, the point that I think is very relevant to us today. It is this. Rather than take ownership of their sin and turn to God for forgiveness, what do they do? They blame him. Rather than take ownership of their sin and turn to God for forgiveness, they blame him, which is not altogether surprising because blaming has always been our human reaction to sin, has it not? Even going back to the Garden of Eden, to the very first sin, where when confronted in their sin, what did Adam say? He says, oh, I'm so sorry. I, 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 this is me. I repent. Forgive me, God. No, he said, hey, that woman, that woman that you gave me, it's her fault. That's why I sinned. And then when Eve was confronted, what did she say? She blamed the serpent. You know, she blamed, so Adam believes, blames Eve. Eve blames the serpent. And guess what? It continues today. It continues today. Humanity continues to blame. We blame our upbringing. 
We blame our genetics. We blame our spouse. We blame the school. We blame the government. We blame our circumstances. We blame God. We blame, we blame, we blame. We do everything but take ownership. Say, it's me. I'm wrong. I'm a wretched sinner in need of forgiveness. A wretched sinner in need of heart transformation. You remember, um, I'm dating myself here for sure. Happy days, right? Remember the Fonz where he, he couldn't apologize? You know, he always, he, um, that's us, right? I think there's something about our sin nature. It's the pride. It's the pride that wells up within us and prevents us from owning our sin and confessing our need of a Savior and our need for heart transformation. We do everything but take ownership and we blame. But here's the thing, and here's what's so tragic about this, and here's why so many of us continue to live in bondage even as believers. The freedom that comes through abundant living in Jesus Christ is only possible when we stop blaming and take ownership of our sin. You know, in in other traditions, a huge emphasis is placed on confession. And we tend to poo-poo that kind of say, oh, that's that tradition. And, you know, and even in the worship setting, in the liturgy, there is an intentional place within the worship experience itself for people to own their sin, to confess it, to repent of it, and to say, I am so wretched and in need of a Savior. We kind of gloss over that in our tradition, and it's to our detriment. Some of you remain in spiritual bondage today because of your unwillingness to own your sin, and you continue to blame. You blame, you blame, you blame. And the problem is you can't repent of and be set free from what you refuse to own. The good news this morning, in contrast to those who blamed God in this ninth verse of Revelation, Freedom awaits you. Freedom awaits you. A clear conscience. Freedom from guilt. Freedom from bondage. Freedom to be who God created you to be. The wonderful creation in his image, living abundantly in Jesus Christ, where his light shines through you and people take notice and they say, what gives? What is it about you? I see this awesome transformation that has taken place. It awaits you. It is your destiny. It is what you were created for. Yet so many of us are living so far below that because we won't take ownership of our sin. When's the last time, seriously, and I I, I say this emphatically because I know my own life and I'm assuming it's not that much different than yours, When's the last time you seriously spent time on your knees before God confessing specific sins to him and taking ownership and saying, what a wretched sinner I am. God, forgive me and thank you in advance for the truth of your word, which is that I am forgiven. When's the last time you did that kind of work with God on your knees? It says in Psalm 51, 17, The sacrifice pleasing to God, the life that's pleasing to God, is a broken spirit. 
Oh God, you not, do not despise a broken and sorrowful heart. And then context of King David on the heels of Bathsheba, the sin that he committed, the context of this is him owning his sin, repenting, and being set free. So that is the story of the first four bold judgments in this mega chapter that is Revelation 16. We've seen judgments of sores, bloody seawater, bloody freshwater, scorching sun. And while these bold judgments may initially, our gut reactions seem unnecessarily harsh, they are true and they are just and rooted in God's holiness, his goodness. And they are yet another example of God's persistent call for lost sinners to be saved. Have you answered that call to salvation? And this morning, if you have answered that call to salvation, and maybe that happened years ago, have you recently answered the call to fresh confession and repentance and ownership of your sins so that you can be set free and live the abundant life that Jesus intends for you? Would you pray with me? Father, how startling it is to get to the end of these first four bold judgments and see the response. Much as Pharaoh in Exodus, whose heart was hardened, we encounter people in Revelation 16 with hard hearts. God, perhaps we are a church of hardened hearts. And if that's the case, we cry out to you this morning that you would do a deep surgery within us, that you would absolutely bring a softness to our hearts that would lead us to confession and repentance and to freedom. Father, we acknowledge that um, we are wretched sinners, and this, this tragedy that we see in the bold judgments, um, that's because of our sin. And so we confess, we repent, and we walk in freedom because Jesus leads us on that path of abundant living. We pray that in Jesus' name. Amen.